before we dive into the eerie tales of the past, I have some electrifying news to share with you. I'm excited to announce that the Haunted History Chronicles podcast now has its very own small shop of the macabre and mysterious. Picture this. Exclusive merchandise, hauntingly beautiful artwork, spine-tingling stickers, mugs that will make your morning coffee seem positively paranormal, and prints that capture the ghostly essence of days gone by. Whether you're a long-time listener of the show, or a newcomer drawn to the enigmatic allure of haunted history, the shop is your gateway to the supernatural. Imagine decorating your space with a piece of history, a connection to the spectral past. The merchandise is designed to evoke the very essence of the stories I share, making it an essential addition to your collection, of all things eerie. You can find all these hair-raising treasures on the website, or simply follow the links conveniently placed in the podcast description notes. It's so easy, even a ghost could do it. So whether you're searching for the perfect addition to your haunted memorabilia collection, or just wanting to immerse yourself in the world of the supernatural, the shop is here to provide. Dive into the past, embrace the spook, and let the stories of history's ghosts haunt your space. So why not visit the shop today, and remember, the spirits of the past are waiting for you. The Haunted History Chronicles exclusive merchandise is just a click away. Happy shopping, and may the spirits be with you. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link, so hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast, or guest. Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Haunted History Chronicles. Today we embark on a journey that challenges the very fabric of reality. Joining me is a distinguished guest, a man whose life is a testament to the extraordinary, Carlos Ayer. Born in Havana in 1950, Carlos arrived in the US in 1962 as one of the unaccompanied Cuban refugee children ferried to Miami by the Pedro Pan airlift. A survivor of separation and adversity, Carlos is now the T.L. Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Carlos's most recent work, They Flew, A History of the Impossible, takes us deep into the annals of history, where accounts of seemingly impossible phenomena were not only acknowledged, but woven into the fabric of everyday life. Levitating saints, flying witches, and tales of witchcraft were as integral to the early modern era as the scientific revolution itself. In this episode, Carlos guides us through a world where scepticism coexisted with belief where the boundaries between the natural and supernatural were blurred. Drawing on first-hand accounts, we explore exceptional cases of levitation, bilocation, and witchcraft. The lives of St. Teresa, St. Joseph of Cupertino, and others provide windows into a reality animated by a different understanding of the impossible. Why did these seemingly impossible events persist? In a world increasingly devoted to scientific thinking, how did culture determine the limits of impossibility? Carlos challenges established assumptions about the transition to modernity, provoking us to question our understanding of reality and the supernatural's relationship with the natural world. As we delve into this part of history, the questions raised by Carlos resonate with our own time. Can there be more to reality than meets the eye, or can be observed by science? 
Join us as we explore the history of the impossible, seeking answers that transcend the boundaries of our understanding. Stay tuned for a mind-bending adventure that challenges the very essence of what we believe to be possible. Hi Carlos, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. Do you want to start by just giving a little bit about your background and and who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Carlos Eyre, spelled E-I-R-E. And um, I'm a professor of history and religious studies at Yale University. My field of specialization is the history of Christianity, more specifically, the early modern period. So from roughly 1400 to 1700. My field used to be called Reformation, <laughs> but that term is not used as, as often anymore. So I'm, I'm an early modernist. You've written a, quite a collection of books, um, some of which we're going to be talking about today. And some of them have this um, focus on the supernatural. I mean, the latest book that you've written is They Flew, A History of the Impossible. What got you interested in wanting to write about that subject matter and the material covered in that book and then other books like The Life of St. Teresa of... Is it Avila? Avila. Probably saying it completely wrong. Avila. Yeah. What got you interested in writing about books like that? Well, I've, you know, I've always been interested in religion. Um, even when I was a child, uh, religion used to scare me. Nothing scared me more than religion when I was a child. But then I, I grew up and realized that what's really scary is the world itself. <laughs> that's, that's the scariest thing of all. It's the world. And I, I, I sort of, in, you know, intuitively figured out at, in my teens that, um, you know, religion is, is a way of coping with the world and coping with all the stuff that life can throw at you. But my chief interest, uh, even, even back then when I was a teen, and it has governed all of my research and, and writing and teaching, is, is the, the very basic proposition of religion, which is that there is some other dimension Right, that they're either you know a supreme being or several supreme beings, or uh, in some cases not even supreme being, but there's another dimension beyond the world that, that we inhabit. And my preoccupation, actually, my obsession has always been to explore, write about, and teach about the ways in which the supernatural, that other dimension has been conceived of and what difference it has made in people's lives. But um, as, as I progressed with my work, and now, you know, I'm, I'm 73, I'm much more interested in the basic assumption, which is, is there something beyond nature, something supernatural? So I focus, uh, in this book, I focus on two phenomena that are deemed impossible by modern science. Uh, the first is levitation, which means being suspended in the air, or in some cases actually moving through the air, flying, and bilocation, uh, being in two places simultaneously. Western history is filled with accounts of levitating and bilocating people. And in Asian religions too, it's very common that this is, this is what holy people do. So I became interested in, in this miracle or phenomenon of levitation 40 years ago. And I haven't been working on this book for 40 years, but the, the spark for it, it, I can date it sometime in June of 1983. I was visiting uh, St. Teresa of Avila's convent in Spain. And one of the items uh, pointed out by the tour guide uh, you know, along with, you know, the pots and pans in the kitchen, the staircase, and other objects was, oh, this is the spot where uh, St. Teresa and John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross, levitated together for the first time. <laughs> and it just, my mind opened up in a very peculiar way. 
And ever since, I've been trying to, in one way or another, uh, figure out what, uh, how, how can we in the 21st century, you know, by we, I mean, those of us that are very much enmeshed in our materialist culture, uh, how, how can anyone write about, speak about, or try to make sense of things that can't happen? Yeah, that most people would dismiss as, as being impossible. Right. Um, but yet there are so many examples of this. And and at various different times, they've been termed different things. They've had different terminology. But yeah. it's it's fascinating to, to look at in an examine because I think they have been looked at by various different people through different lenses, if you like, whether it was through spiritualists and the rise of spiritualism and being focused on these types of phenomena mm -hmm. all yep. through religion and religious ecstasy and the connection with saints, etc. But then also other cultures and other religions and, and the list goes on and on and on. But the fact is it is something that has been recorded about for centuries. And it's such an interesting period of, of history from that point of view alone to, to, to look at and examine, but to also ask and, and to think about those deeper, wider questions of, well, what does that say? Is there, is there something beyond what we consider possible right. um, out there? You know, right. are these things really, truly impossible? That's, that's the big question. And to me, the, the most important question, but of course, proving that something happened 400 years ago, such as levitation or bilocation, you know, it's, it's actually impossible to offer conclusive proof. What I argue in, in, in this book, They Flew, is that maybe we should not give in totally to dogmatic materialism and rule out the possibility that some of these quote-unquote impossible phenomena happened or might still be happening, closing it off simply because we don't have enough film from the 17th century <laughs> that shows anybody levitating um, is, I think, irresponsible for any historian to simply dismiss the facts that are described in thousands of testimonies. And St. Teresa herself wrote quite extensively about it, didn't she? So, you know, like you said, there are there are just such a plethora of accounts and documented examples of this type of phenomena that, like you said, I just think are worthy of really looking at it and not simply dismissing it as as being ridiculous and and therefore not worthy of the same kind of discussion that other matters get. That's right, because, um, you know, um, he, uh, so-called healing miracles, I mean, he healings that can't be explained by modern science or medicine happen all the time. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that's the, the, the bar that has to be cleared is whether for, for a, a miracle to be defined a miracle in, in the Catholic Church when someone is up for sainthood, the bar that one has to surmount is scientists saying we can't explain how this person was healed <laughs> we have no way of explaining how this tumor went away or how this little girl developed nerves in her ears eight years after her birth these things just don't happen normally but there are always these an anomalous uh, events and if um, these these healing miracles uh, which happen very frequently show us that what is termed impossible is not always impossible. Why rule out other phenomena? Absolutely. So do you want to just kind of give us a broader sense of the, the history of the impossible in terms of how common this was? How Was it frequent? Was it infrequent to kind of have these types of documented experiences? I mean, you've mentioned other cultures. I'm, I'm just wondering if you know, you could give us that kind of broader picture sure, of sure. this kind of backdrop. Both of these phenomena are ancient, and you can find them in, in some of the oldest documents that we have across the globe. 
and and you know even in in cultures that didn't have writing the oral accounts have been passed on and on and whenever i would speak of this project to my colleagues who deal with asian religions they would always express no surprise at all yeah oh so what of course yes that's it's an essential part of religion but it's never been frequent uh, and, and it's always been a very you know relatively speaking small number of people who have been seen levitating or have been um, seen in two places simultaneously they're very few but it, it, it's a constant you know from ancient times and in the west pre-christian uh, and then in the early years of the christian religion there aren't that many accounts of levitating or bilocating people but you get to the early middle ages uh, so beginning about the 8th 9th century you begin to see more and more reports of this and and as as time progresses we keep seeing more and more reports but of course before the invention of the printing press around 1450 these reports were all in manuscript form so if one looks for this phenomenon before the invention of the printing press one finds relatively few accounts compared to what one finds after the invention of the printing press when all such reports can end up being printed and distributed widely in the thousands or tens of thousands of copies so for that reason alone the fact that the printing press makes knowledge of this um more common it just so happens that 16th 17th century are the peak period in in western history for accounts of hovering and flying and bilocating people in the west and by the west i refer to all all of europe and its new world colonies in the west of course the 16th century is also the time of the protestant reformation and what happened at that time was that all the major leaders of protestant churches that emerged in the 16th century began to teach that such miracles with quotation marks around them not miracles at all but rather the work of the devil because even though the new testament is full of miracle stories and protestant churches are bible centered you know the Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, all the other leaders of the Protestant Reformation um said yes of course those miracles that recounted in in the New Testament actually did happen but when the last apostle died so somewhere around the year 100 there was no need for miracles anymore because the world had begun to convert to Christianity already so since the year 100 or so any such events if they happen are not from god but from the devil and we have this very odd asymmetry then that develops between catholic christians and protestant christians and before i go further let me let me add that the eastern orthodox church in the eastern parts of of europe they're very much like the catholic church on this too uh, this is something that can happen to very holy people but can also happen to people who have given their soul over to the devil such as witches so the catholic and eastern orthodox churches uh these phenomena can be attributed either to god if the person is living a very holy life or to the devil but among protestant churches any such events or phenomena were instantly uh suspected of being demonic it's i mean it's fascinating it's something i've looked at before in terms of just that social history element of how religion really does kind of permeate into everyday life and experiences and how those shifts can happen when you have religious turmoil and changes in dogma and and so many other things but it is fascinating that you do have this this extreme of it could be one thing or it could be the complete opposite yeah. um, um with no middle ground And, yeah and no fuzziness no gray area it's it's one or the other it's either or and in in the case of protestant churches in the 16th and 17th century their attitude the attitude towards miracles would would change in some protestant churches in the 18th century 
And there's a wonderful book by Jane Shaw, Miracles in Enlightenment England, which documents very clearly that at the popular level, even though the, the Church of England might have been teaching that you know these things uh, are not done by God, uh, people continued to believe in the reality of these phenomena and in the, the divine nature of these phenomena. But the fact is that this very same time period, 16th to 17th century, is also the age of witch hunts. And, you know, talk about a, a bundle of unpleasant developments. In, in addition to these differences of opinion between Catholics and Protestants, and the wars caused by those differences, you've got witch persecutions. And witches, of course, were believed to fly or to be instantly transported from one place to the other, transvection, uh, which is almost like bilocation. So this is why it's the peak period for accounts of flying people. Uh, you know, you've got saints <laughs> in Catholicism and, you've, and witches. And on the Protestant side, you've got witches uh, flying to their, their uh, witchy rituals. Which, again, like I said, is just so fascinating because it is those extremes. And it's, it's interesting that something has been used to highlight something sinful, and yet the opposite side of that, something very dark and very dangerous. And I think you see that play out in things like the witchcraft trials and the the rhetoric surrounding these types of events. It's it's predominantly things that are unknown, isn't it? It's people fearing something different and unknown, and these very these very divisive judgments being made one way or the other as a result. Yes, and um, you know, the, one can also find very logical explanations for why there's an increase in these phenomena during this period. And that logical explanation would be that these phenomena are a marker of difference between Protestants and Catholics. And since Protestants are saying, look, there are no more miracles like this, they're just demonic, you see an intensification of this, uh, these phenomena among Catholics as a response to the Protestant denial of these phenomena. And, and it's, you know, it's, uh, I guess one could call it uh, a vicious cycle, or a, a better to say inflationary spiral, <laughs> where you, you see more of these events taking place simply because they're, they're a point of disagreement and, and, and a marker of one's identity. So, um, yeah, all of a sudden we've got all sorts of saints in the Catholic world beginning in the 16th century, who levitate, uh, and, and a smaller number who bilocate. And the, the descriptions of some of them are absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I, I think I'm right in saying that St. Teresa was known to weigh herself down, wasn't she? So that it wouldn't happen. Yes. And I just, I mean, the visual of that to to have someone weighing them down with stones to prevent themselves from, from lifting up from the ground is just absolutely intoxicating to think about in the sense of that's just so fascinating and intriguing for so many different reasons. Oh, yeah. And St. Teresa uh, not only describes in her autobiography what it feels like to levitate, but she relates... Uh, she has many accounts of how she had, since she was the superior of her convent, she had given strict orders to the nuns. Next time you see me going up, hold me down. <laughs> or if I'm up, pull me down. And the nuns would try to either hold her down or pull her down and weren't able to do so. And one can also find similar accounts on the other side the demonic side of uh, demonically possessed individuals who rise to the ceiling and can't be held down or pulled down. And I found one uh, as late as 1693 in Boston, here in, in New England. A teenage girl um, possessed by a demon 
several burly men, and that was the description in the document, burly men just piled up on top of her, try to keep her from going up from her bed, and they couldn't. And then they tried to pull her down from the ceiling and couldn't. And these burly men were all Puritans. <laughs> They're not Catholics. They're Puritans in Boston in 1693. And the cleric involved, who, by the way, was also involved in the Salem witch trials, Cotton Mather, uh, made all the men sign affidavits that they had, in fact, witnessed this and had been part of it. So 1693 is not that long ago, <laughs> no. relatively speaking. <laughs> no, and, and like I said, if you, if you can find examples of these types of things all the way through to more modern modern times. I mean, if we think about examples recorded by the spiritualist movement, if we just take it from that point of view right. of, yes. of objects levitating and yep. mediums being able to, to levitate things and have them hovering in the air, you know, these it, it's so very well documented. And, and like we said at the beginning when we were speaking, it's not being dismissive of these accounts, but really trying to understand what could be happening or what else might be at play right. and, and and we we are very good at dismissing things because we you know if we can't see it if we can't understand that the motions in play if you like we can be quite dismissive of something that seems impossible seems unnatural because we like our neat tidy bows and things to be wrapped up and quite concise but sometimes things don't have those neat explanations because we just don't have the ability right. to to find the science behind it not everything is necessarily so easily quantified that's right and um there 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 are ways in which in the 19th century there was a return to a more open-minded approach to these phenomena as you mentioned you know with spiritualism uh as a matter of fact the term levitation was invented by spiritualists if you're looking in the documents that I had to look at from the 16th to 17th century, you'll never find the word levitation being used. That was invented in the 19th century. And the same goes for telepathy. Spiritualists came up with that term too, the ability to communicate wordlessly. Uh, so there was an openness to it. And the American philosopher, uh, William James, uh, came up with a term that I love which is wild facts. You know, that history is, is full of wild facts that can't be corralled into a neat little pigeonhole uh, in our uh, sort of modern scientific understanding of things. They're just wild and they're anomalous and they happen fairly frequently and denying them is really unscientific. Because I think you're dismissing a whole, a whole litany of examples and a and a whole centuries worth of examples of these types of phenomena. I mean, I had the same conversation with Professor Irving Finkel from the British Museum on the same subject matter, hmm. where he was saying, you know, if you've got these very early documented cases of of demons, say for example in um, ancient Babylonia, and you've got it documented on on clay these stories, these accounts, they didn't do that for everyday things. You know, they, they recorded what was important to their society, to their belief system, to their everyday existence. So the fact that we have these really very early examples and then continued on to dismiss all of that is dismissing a whole lot of history of belief systems, accounts, documented examples of things and you know that it's not it's not scientific to do that you don't throw throw everything out just because you have a different opinion so yeah right. it's it's fascinating that people do try to dismiss these types of phenomena so readily because it doesn't fit a viewpoint that they want to have that's right and um there are some individuals who can be very aggressive in their denial which means that they instantly uh, label the person who is trying to, you know, analyze them, uh, label them as silly or ridiculous. As a matter of fact, I, at a talk I gave some years ago on this subject, uh, someone in the audience said, no, professor, you're not doing 
You're not writing the history of the impossible. You're writing the history of the ridiculous. And um, a review of my, my new book, this book we're talking about, that just appeared last week in uh, online and The Spectator, which is, is a British website, uh, accused me of silliness. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, all I can say is, yeah, sure. Yeah, if that's the po point of view you want to have, that's fine. Uh, I can easily call you silly too for writing off the possibility things that you can't understand actually do sometimes happen. Uh, so, and, and I'm always very amused by the fact that these, these aggressive materialists will not deny that spontaneous healing miracles do happen. They can't deny that because, well, there's this medical evidence that they happen. Uh, but they deny these other phenomena. And, uh, you know, I myself, my wife and I are living proof that medical miracles happen. If you want to put quotation marks around medical and mir miracle, we were told by numerous experts that we would never have any children. And we have three. And after our first was born, one of these experts, uh, a doctor at the hospital said, well, you know, I, I told you guys that um, you had a less than 1% chance of ever having children, but the real figure was 0%. <laughs> he was astonished that it had happened. And you can't deny the, the obviousness of what happened. They just can't understand how it happened. And again, that comes back to what we've been saying. It's the, we do like to know the ins and outs and the detail, but we don't always have that ability to see it all. Whether we can do that right now, or if it's something that we just never really truly understand, we're not, you know, we just don't have the ability to see everything in the way that we would like to. Again, I mean, there's so many deeper questions, I think, with the, with the regards to all of that as to whether these these are things that we could potentially be able to prove or disprove, or like I said, if they're just always going to be the unknowns. But but the fact is the unknowns are what drive us. We like those types of things. And so whether someone believes these things are, are silly or they believe that they're possible and that they're interesting to look at and study and examine from whichever perspective they want to look at them from, the fact is we all talk about them because we are intrigued by the unknown and someone will say that's that's ridiculous and someone will say that's fascinating i'd really like to know more about that right but we all still talk about them for a reason yes and we puzzle over uh, these possibilities uh, because they are rare they are infrequent and if it were an everyday occurrence we wouldn't have any inclination to talk about it as much as we do <laughs> it's you know uh, oh, yes, the grass is green, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yes. Imagine having that conversation every day. Oh, uh, the grass is nice and green today, isn't it? Uh, but, but levitating and bilocating individuals are, are few and far between. Uh, you know, even in cultures that think that such a phenomenon is possible, it doesn't happen all that often. Uh, so there, there's a lot of weirdness to these phenomena, when one of them is the fact that they do seem to happen fairly infrequently, and that when they do happen, people are astonished. Or, in many of the accounts that I read from the 16th and 17th century, people can be frightened out of their wits, or even faint, when they see this happen. Um, and the event can inspire terror as much as awe or surprise. And, you know, uh, stage magicians or illusionists, as they like to call themselves nowadays, uh, they, they, they levitate on stage. Or in one case that I saw in a documentary, uh, illusionist David Blaine was doing his levitating trick on the street in New York. And the, the way the that it was filmed and, and shown in the documentary was very interesting because they would focus, 
the camera on his feet, which looked like they were off the pavement. But then immediately the camera would turn to the people around David Blaine. And their body language seemed to always be the same. They pulled away from David Blaine. They pulled away from him because they thought, obviously, these people who were pulling away, there's just something too weird happening here. And one young girl said uh, to the camera, and it was included in the documentary, of course, oh, he must be a very holy man. So there's also that assumption that not only weird, perhaps terrifying, but there's, there's something special going on here. To celebrate heading into the spookier season, autumn nights, howling wind and freezing rain, Halloween spookiness in the dark depths of winter, Haunted History Chronicles will be posting daily podcasts on Patreon, on all tiers over there, as well as the usual additional items offered. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1 you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, writing, source material and more, and know that you are contributing and helping the podcast to continue to put out more content. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website or social media. So why not come along to enjoy a rich web of accounts perfect for this season? Dark tales of corpses, ghosts, folklore, Christmas and Halloween macabre traditions and connections, and a whole lot more. And now, let's head back to the podcast. Which is interesting that that's something that, because I I think it's something that still often gets equate, equated to other acts where there's an element of the supernatural, the unknown, uh, miraculous about what's being experienced and being documented. And yet it, you see the same type of thing sometimes creeping in, in terms of bystanders having that belief that there is something religious in tone to it in the mm-hmm. sense that maybe it's the person they connect they're very spiritual themselves or they have dabbled with something very unnatural and the opposite of that mm-hmm. as a kind of a contrast whether it's for example they're having these negative experiences because they've dabbled say for example with the Ouija board you know you see these kinds of same types of of kind of references and, and thinking coming through in lots of different examples, either positively or negatively, whether this person is being somehow touched by God or by the devil and by demons. It's interesting that they still, they, it still comes through even in, in something like David Blaine on the street Mm -hmm. doing one of his tricks that, you know, these are some of the reference points that we use when we're just, when we're looking at something that is again, something that we can't maybe explain. That's right. It's the the unexplainability of it that terrifies people. Sometimes it's just, it's actual terror that's described in the documents that I've worked with. It's absolute sheer terror. And um, sometimes it can be funny in these accounts. uh, For instance, uh, the greatest levitator of all time was St. Joseph of Cupertino who lived between 1603 and 1663. So he died when he was 60. Once he literally flew over the head of the Spanish Viceroy in Italy and his wife and the entire entourage. And the Viceroy's wife fainted and and had to be uh, revived with smelling salts. And um, another uh, occasion, Joseph of Cupertino also rose above the head of Pope Urban VIII. And the Pope was shocked. And he supposedly said, he was recorded as saying, if this man dies before I do, I will testify at his canonization inquest that he flew above my head. 
very calmly, very coolly, like, you know, accepting it. They have two very different attitudes towards the miracle. As you were saying, the bystanders uh, often project things of their own on, onto what is happening. And again, I think we still do that as bystanders to these types of events. We we impose our own biases on them, rather than just simply looking at, looking at them as as pieces of evidence, and what they reflect about that moment in terms of what people who witnessed it witnessed it saw, mm-hmm. um, what it was like for them, and those experiences just in themselves. And then, you know, from there, you can do all manner of things with them. But like I said, I think we often tend to impose our own thoughts and biases on them. And that's where, again, you get people with, you know, those those thoughts and beliefs that they are simply ridiculous and nonsensical. And then others who will just look at them for those historical references that they give, but also the, um, the chance to examine these types of phenomena because it's interesting um, and worthy of looking into. Right. And, you know, sometimes in, in history, that, that personal attitude that the bystander or even, you know, literally the judge can have make a world of difference. And uh, another account that is, uh, I think, extremely significant is a witchcraft trial that took place, I forget where in England, but it was in England, where, where witch trials were f- far fewer than Scotland but they still had them. Anyway, um, at a witchcraft trial, uh, a witness uh, declared, yes, she is a witch. I saw her flying. And the judge overruled the witness's testimony on the grounds that, quote, unquote, there is no law against flying. (laughs) And according to some experts, that was the beginning of the end of witchcraft trials in England. It set a precedent, an actual legal precedent. The the skepticism being so intense that, yes, you can even like make it into a joke, but also fold it into legal procedures. There's no law against flying. It is fascinating though how certain people, whether it's religion or whether it is the judicial system, which you just mentioned, how they do have this very important role to play in how these accounts are perpetuated, how they are related, how they are shared with the masses, if you like. You know, the people in political power, whether it the religious power, they're very much the storytellers of the day, aren't they? They are the ones telling and driving the narrative and people then just being caught up in the middle of it. And, you know, I said before, I think you during this particular period, you you very much have people looking forward and looking back, being caught between an older type of religion and these belief systems and modernity coming through and these these changes in society and things happening all of the time that oh. just create so much upheaval. And, and like I said, people being caught in the middle, looking forward and looking backward, just trying to make do and, and understand that what's happening around them. Yes, and you know, real history is is never simple. It's always complicated, and you have, uh, you know, one image that what can use is is a rope that is made of different strands. I mean, it still functions as a rope, and the more strands it has, the the stronger it is. But in in the transition from let's say medieval to modern which is the period my book covers. That transition was was not neat and clean anywhere. Uh, and if you want to view it as a rope with different strands, all these strands were there simultaneously, the ones, strands representing belief in these impossible phenomena and disbelief. Because point of fact, Isaac Newton walked on earth at least for two decades, the same time as Joseph of Cupertino. So the, the, the man who discerned the law of gravity or the laws of gravity was on earth at exactly the same time as a human being who defied the laws of gravity. Uh, and um, you, you see this constantly. It's never neat and clean. And it, you know, as you said, again, 19th century 
spiritualism revives belief in, in, in these phenomena. And the 20th century, you know, still to, the, to this date in Catholicism, you can find many people who, who have a, accounts and claim to have witnessed levitation and bilocation. And actually, there is a uh, 20th century French nun who I, I, I only discovered her existence towards the end of my project, but I became very intrigued by her case because uh, her dates were 1901 to 1951. And of course, she was uh, in France. She was there during the, the Nazi occupation, the German occupation of France. And she helped the French resistance and, and downed allied pilots escape from the Germans by dressing them as nuns. And she was given the five highest decorations that any French citizen can get, including the Croix de Guerre and the Légion d'Honneur, pinned on her by none other than Charles de Gaulle. And we have photos of Charles de Gaulle pinning this medal on Sister Yvonne Aimé de Malestroit. But she also reportedly bilocated frequently to prisons and concentration camps to comfort people in these horrible situations and in some cases help them escape without ever leaving her convent. And at one point she was reeled in by the Gestapo and tortured. And while she was being tortured, we have an account from her confessor, priest, who says he was in the Paris metro waiting for a train. And she suddenly showed up and told him exactly what was happening to her with the Gestapo and asked for his prayers. And the Gestapo uh, eventually released her. But I, I don't have the details on what, what was done to her uh, by the Gestapo. But at least one can point to an event where in the 20th century, someone was seen in the Paris metro who was simultaneously in Malestroit, several hundreds kilometers away. That's fascinating. Gosh, that makes me want to go and read more about her story. I mean, that's so intriguing. That's it, really fascinating. What I also find intriguing and, and fascinating about her is that virtually all of the literature on her is in French and has not been translated. It's very weird, I think. Uh, there are no translations to any language, English, German, Italian, any Chinese. No, it, if you want to read about this nun, it's very hard to if your only language is English. Although I did see that there are some YouTube videos on her. Uh, but why, why this has remained so closely shuttered uh, in France, just in French language publications, is, I think, somewhat baffling. Yeah, it poses all kinds of questions as to whether it's, is it, is it kind of further examples of what we've been talking about, which is does somehow talking about that somehow detract from what she was doing during the war? You know, right. yes. Well, is there another motivation kind of driving why that that hasn't been delved into in the way that the rest of her life was? Right. And, and again, there's resistance. Mm. I, I think it's very funny. I've, I've already started pitching the story of this nun to some publishers. And uh, I begin with the rescuing allied pilots and resistance fighters part of it. Her real, you know, documented heroism. And then I follow up with the bilocations and they have lost interest immediately. <laughs> yeah, so well, that would make a great movie. What a great movie that would be. Yeah. The nun who rescued people by men by dressing them as nuns. But, but then, then from the bilocation. Then somehow throw the bilocation in and it becomes, oh, actually, no. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's not. We're, we're now going down the, the, the kind of the the road of uh, something ridiculous. But again, right. it's just that it's that dichotomy. You know, you can be more than one thing and you can have these different mm -hmm. th these different experiences. Right. But right. I think it speaks volumes as to... Actually, I think it all speaks volumes as to who she was. If, if 
that was the role that she took during the war and yet here you have examples of of bilocation where actually that's still being demonstrated by coming through to help rescue mm-hmm. to comfort people right. you know it says a lot about her character and again that strength and determination to to do what she was doing as part of the resistance yes and there are also people. Of her yeah and there are also accounts of her levitating so add add more uh, fuel to the fire so to speak oh i want to read her book seriously i hope someone really does take that up and and take and goes with that one accounts like that should not be kind of sidelined because they are so interesting fascinating really really intriguing yeah honestly it's been so wonderful to talk to you and i i really hope that people having listened to the podcast will will go away take a look at your books and i'll make sure to put links to you to where they can find the books etc right because there's so much more to this in terms of examining these impossible um phenomena the history of the impossible examples and and diving into this subject matter in the way that you do and so yeah i really do hope people take a look because it's it's certainly very intriguing and like i said at the beginning you can look at this from so many different angles and it's just such a rich um area to look at so thank you for giving us some of your time today well thank you for inviting me to join you uh, for this podcast thank you very much and i will say goodbye to everybody listening Bye, everyone.